Hey, it's Gina. And it's Chris. And we want to give a special shout out to the very first patron of the Midwest Crime Files, Kim Arbuthnot. Woohoo! Kim is a silver level sponsor, which means she gets exclusive access to patron only episodes, as well as some cool memorabilia that we have in the mail for you, Kim. Thank you so much for being a supporter. We are happy to have you. Yeah, thank you so much, Kim. The Midwest Crime Files is an unscripted true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss heinous crimes and how they are committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. And I'm Chris. We're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that changed them forever. We are doing a special remastered episode one of season one today. We went back and listened to um, our older episodes and were a little appalled at our own sound quality. Yeah, so we decided to take your guys' advice uh, that some of you guys left on Apple Reviews and we're going to remaster them. I mean, I think our audio quality now is better, so it's why not? It's definitely improved. Right, so why not give them the very best of the very best, so. So, we are going to be talking today about two women from Brighton, Illinois, which, if you don't know, that's up there by Alton, and it's a fairly small town, and in the 1980s, it was really small, smaller than it even is today. Um, there was a population of like 2,400 people. So if you can imagine, like we live in a town of like 5,000. Uh, it's like half the size of our little town. Right. Um, and But among those 2,400 people were the Evans family and the Sims family. And today we're going to tell you the stories of the Brighton baby killers. Tammy Corbett was born in Illinois in 1965. She was the oldest of two daughters, and throughout her childhood and adolescence, she was outgoing, she was sociable, um, but one thing that I found was that she actually had suffered a head injury from a swimming accident in her youth. Right. And I think that that's important because we see, the more cases we cover, we see that head injuries and head trauma are sometimes correlated with uh, future violent behavior. Right. But as Tammy went to high school, she didn't seem to have any effects from her head injury. As a freshman, she was class president, she was a cheerleader, and by all accounts, she was a healthy, happy teenager. But that all changed around 1982, and family and friends started to notice this dramatic change in her behavior. She once was a mostly A student, and now her grades were just plummeting. She also started drinking heavily and behaving out of character. Tammy told her family at that point she had been raped. But her story of how the rape occurred seems to vary depending on who she tells the story to. According to court records, she had first claimed to be raped by a boyfriend. Second, she said she was grabbed from behind by a stranger while getting into her car. And a third version of the story claimed that she was raped by a black man. The stories were never consistent enough for the police to take them seriously. And a lot of people believe that she was just a pathological liar. 
So what I will say about that is that sexual assault victims often don't report crimes because they're afraid of not being taken seriously. And sometimes they're afraid of their abuser. So given the circumstances like her grades plummeting and um, having alcohol and substance issues, I do believe something happened. Right, because those are like the main... Red flags. Red flags of that, hey, something's happened to this person. But it's also red flags to uh, like brain injuries and stuff like that too. Or even mental health diseases, you know, disorders. Right. You know, so... Right, you know, it's uh, it's not impossible that this could have happened to her. That she, yeah, she she could have been raped, and but that would def- definitely explain the erratic behavior. Right, um, and she really just became self destructive, and it's entirely impossible that that was as a result of rape trauma. But she fabricated these stories, maybe out of fear, um, possibly out of embarrassment. Like who really knows? But there's other causes possible, too. You know, um, she was a teenager, and she was experiencing with alcohol, and, you know, maybe she just went down a spiral, um, or maybe she was mentally ill. I don't know. But she was clearly disturbed and needed some kind of help. After high school, Tammy met and married Richard Evans, and... It did not take long for Richard to realize that something was wrong with Tammy, and she was definitely unstable. They had an argument on their honeymoon, and she attempted suicide. That's an awesome way to spend a honeymoon. Right? I didn't find a whole lot of details about the suicide attempt, but there were people, though, that really thought that her suicide attempt was for attention. Yeah. Like, to me, this is an outsider looking in. I feel like something happened to her. And she was she was mentally unstable. And she was shouting for help. But a lot of people felt like she was shouting for attention. And they're the people who knew her. So I'm not going to judge that. I'm just saying from an outside perspective, I could see where maybe she was a rape trauma victim. Right. Def- and that's definitely, I mean, she's showing behavior of it you know for sure and soon after the wedding though tammy became pregnant and on july 19th 1986 richard evans jr was born the couple adored their son and they called him ricky for short he would not be an only child very long though because tammy became pregnant again very soon after ricky's birth and on july 31st 1987 they welcomed another son, Robert Evans. And they called him Robbie. Yeah, I had a nice set of uh, Irish twins. Almost. Less than, a, le- less than a year apart. Well, there's oh, a little yeah, more than sorry, a year. Sorry, just a little bit more. but Almost Irish twins. Right. <laughs> um, Richard described his wife as a loving mother and that both of their sons were cherished. And in addition to their sons... Richard had a daughter from a previous marriage, and she was around 10 years old at this point. And it just seemed like they were becoming this, like, picturesque family. Tammy was known to be dramatic, though, and her propensity for drama continued even after she became a mother. When Richard took a job as a painter to support the family, Tammy was just not really a fan of being home alone all the time 
she got very frustrated and upset because her husband would be on the road. Friends and family of Tammy said that she was angry with her husband because he was gone so much for work and that she did things to get his attention. It's been reported that Tammy even made comments about, quote, getting even, end quote, with Richard because he worked too much. Now, then that's, like, you can't get mad at your husband for, like, especially if you're not working, like, taking a job where you have to be away, like, but I can see from her point where she's, I mean, hell. Well, and I think we talked about this before, you know, there's always a strain on relationships when somebody works outside of the home for extended chunks of time. Right. In September of 1987, Richard got a call to come home from his job as a painter because his son, Robbie, who was just seven weeks old, had been hurt. Richard rushed home to be with his family, and he soon learned that Robbie had a fractured skull. He was rushed to the hospital because he had stopped breathing at home. So, that if that's not the scariest thing that can happen to a parent, I don't know what is. Right. Your tiny baby... Has a fractured skull and stopped breathing. Right. Holy crap. Tammy told her husband and the hospital personnel that she had been downstairs doing laundry and she heard Robbie start to cry. She came upstairs and she found him lying on the floor. And she said she had left the baby on the kitchen table while she went downstairs to do laundry and she thought that her toddler son, Ricky, had pulled the baby off the table by pulling on the tablecloth. Who the heck leaves a child on a table? Now, was she... Now, I, I would like to know, was he laid on the table? Was he in, like, a... Did they have, he's like... He's seven the, weeks old, so I can't imagine that he's... Like, in a bumper, like, a bumpo seat or whatever they're yeah, called? Yeah, no, I'm thinking she just laid in there. Now, mind you, this is the 80s, and... Let's be real, people. When our parents had us in the 80s, they were not nearly as anal about car seats and safety. Safety, <laughs> safety rules was a whole totally different thing. For sure. Um, nevertheless, though, that's frightening. Um, she came up and, like I said, she found that baby laying on the floor and she said she called 911 and he had basically stopped breathing. While Robbie's in the hospital, Richard took time off to comfort his wife and be with his son, and Robbie began to recover at the hospital. He seemed to be doing well, and the entire time he was at the hospital, he never had difficulty breathing. So it wasn't like his, I mean, yes, he had a fractured skull, but it wasn't like he had severe brain trauma. After a few days, Richard decided that he really needs to get back to work because he's supporting a family of five. Well, yeah, and now you've got some medical bills to go along with that family of five. So, right. Yeah. That would prove to be a mistake, though. Robert Evans died at the hospital on September 25, 1987. The medical examiner ruled the cause of death as spinal meningitis as a result of the skull fracture. No foul play was suspected, and Tammy seemed genuinely devastated by the loss of her baby. And I would be, like, I, I, I think any parent hopefully would be devastated if a, a kid dies. Yes, definitely. Not long after Robbie's death, Tammy was once again pregnant, so she didn't have a whole lot of time to wallow. Right. On August 16th, 1988, Amy Cecile Evans was born. On September 1st of 1988, 
Richard awoke and he found his wife yelling that she had to go check on Amy. So it seemed like she like woke up out of a dead sleep screaming. She then ran to the crib where Amy, who was just 16 days old, was cold and lifeless. The death was determined to be caused by sudden infant death syndrome, and foul play, once again, was not suspected. Well, I mean, SIDS is common enough, you know. It happens. I mean, and it's, it's tragic when it happens, but it happens. Richard asked his wife why she ran to Amy's crib that morning, and what she told him is kind of creepy. She said she was having a terrible dream, and she was at the cemetery, and when she looked at Robbie's grave, she saw Amy's name on the headstone. That's the kind of dream I would have, and wake up, like, pissed off at the world. Right, or scared shit, you know? Yeah, terrible. This family has lost not one, but two children in just a little bit over a year. Obviously, that's devastating. It's gut-wrenching, and it's something that no parent should ever have to go through. That's not even where this ends, though. Not even a year after Amy's death, Tammy dialed 911 and reported that her three-year-old son, Ricky, was not breathing. Richard Evans Jr. died on his third birthday. Does that not just break your heart? Yeah, I, that's sad. <laughs> July 19th, 1989. Tammy reported that her son wasn't breathing. They rushed him to St. Anthony's Hospital in Alton, and he was pronounced dead. Tammy claimed that she had been asleep with her son, and she woke up, and he was no longer breathing. This time, suspicions were immediately raised. Tammy eventually told authorities that she was having a nightmare about the rape she experienced as a teenager, and she believes that in her nightmare state, she had smothered her son. His cause of death was asphyxiation. Once again, you know, this is one of those things that happens. Like, unfortunately, like how many times have we heard in the past of you know you know a mom or dad sharing the bed with their kid and rolling rolling over on them like but he's three so i mean we're not talking about a tiny tiny baby at this point right you gotta use there's gotta be a significant amount of force to asphyxiate Asphyxiate. a three-year-old right on august 10th 1989 tammy was arrested for the murder of her three-year-old son ricky it seems that immediately after her arrest, alarm bells started going off, not only for investigators, but for friends and family of Tammy and Richard Sr. That's when some details came to light in the investigation into Robbie and Amy's deaths. Investigators decide they're going to reopen those cases. While Tammy sat in the county jail awaiting her trial, she has a phone conversation with an acquaintance named Lynn. Lynn would later testify that during the conversation, she expressed to Tammy that she believed Tammy was the murderer of Robbie. And she also believed that she murdered Amy. And Tammy said, quote, it was my hands. It wasn't me. It was my hands. End quote. Lynn claimed that she yelled at the defendant, quote, you killed Robbie, end quote, to which Tammy responded, no, 
Ricky, and then claimed to have nothing to do with the death of her daughter. On September 14, 1990, Tammy was found guilty but mentally ill in Jersey County and was sentenced to 20 years in the Department of Corrections for the murder of Richard Evans Jr. That same month, her husband Richard Sr. divorced her. Richard would later testify in April of 1990 he visited Tammy in jail while she was awaiting trial. He said that during his conversation with Tammy, she admitted that she had placed her hands over Robbie's mouth and suffocated him while he was in the hospital. She also allegedly admitted to her husband that she had placed her hands over Amy's mouth, ending her 16-day-old daughter's life in the same That's manner. That's so heartbreaking. According to Richard, Tammy laughed during this conversation and she commented that she didn't understand how Richard didn't wake up while she was killing Amy. She was charged with the murders of Robert Evans and Amy Evans in April of 1991. Tammy seemed to enjoy storytelling about the crimes that she committed. Several inmates came forward and during her second trial, they told stories about her admitting to killing all three of her children by suffocation and also recounted several stories of this rape allegation once again. One inmate testified that during a conversation with Tammy, she said, quote, when Amy and Robbie, Robbie died, they both kicked their legs hard like a little baby would kick their legs trying to swim in water, end quote. Like, you gotta be a sick person. You gotta be a sick son of a bitch. Yes. To not only kill your own children, but to kill them like that and then take so much pleasure in reliving it. Right. Why were these babies' deaths ruled natural or accidental if Tammy had in fact murdered them? Dr. William Drake testified at trial that he performed the original autopsy on Amy and determined that her cause of death was cardiorespiratory arrest due to anoxia, meaning she wasn't breathing and so she lacked oxygen. He went on to explain that SIDS is essentially failure to breathe for unknown reasons. And so when there's nothing else to indicate why this baby stopped breathing, they attach the diagnosis of SIDS. And often SIDS and suffocation is indistinguishable in an autopsy on a very small infant. Dr. Raj Nanduri was the forensic pathologist who performed the autopsies on Robert and later on Ricky. She testified that meningitis is not always fatal. Also, she testified that Robert's death was not inconsistent with suffocation and that it's very hard to distinguish suffocation from other causes of death in a small child. Dr. Nanduri performed Richard's autopsy. This was B. Richard Jr., Ricky, and determined the cause of death to be suffocation and she was the one who then suggested that the other two deaths be investigated. I have a little bit of a thought on that, though. If you can't tell the difference between SIDS and asphyxiation, and then you're saying that this, this her oldest son, Robbie, also had spinal meningitis, and that's not always fa fatal. I mean, I see some reasonable doubt for Robbie's case by itself, but when you put all three of them together... Right. I mean, it starts to fall apart. 
Mary Case, another pathologist, reviewed the autopsies of Robert and Amy. She testified that Robbie did not have meningitis, but had localized brain inflammation, and that she believed that the matter of death should have been ruled as undetermined from the beginning. So if he didn't have meningitis, there goes your reasonable doubt. Right. Also, she stated that suffocation was very hard to distinguish in small infants. Dr. Case testified that SIDS typically occurs in children who are older than one month, where Amy was just 16 days old. She also testified that SIDS should not be the cause of death without a full investigation into the family's history, including the deaths of other small children in the family. It was her opinion that given the family history, Amy and Robbie's deaths should be considered homicides. I'm just trying to figure out where, like, I guess it's just them being doctors and seeing it all the time. Like, the age for SIDS, it's, oh, it's older than a month, you know? Well, there are... Not always, but she said typically. Yeah. I mean, there's that. Other testimony at trial helped seal Tammy's fate. Her sister-in-law testified that she had had suspicions even back in 1987 when Robbie got injured. She said that she went to the house to get... Tammy and Richard Sr. some clothes and she noticed that there wasn't a tablecloth on the table or in the kitchen. So the theory that Ricky had pulled Robbie off the table by pulling on the tablecloth didn't make sense. And also, Ricky was only 13 months old and he couldn't walk yet. So I don't know about you, but I haven't seen that many babies that don't walk yet that can pull another baby you know, you got to pull that tablecloth with enough force right. to pull that entire baby. So, it just doesn't seem like it would make a whole lot of sense. No, not at all. She also testified that Tammy often told her that she wanted to get even with her husband for being away too much. And that Rob- when Robbie was in the hospital, Tammy leaned over him and said, quote, Don't worry, baby. I got even. End quote. So, she just seems like... And- I mean, I keep going back to, like, whatever happened to her in her adolescence. Whatever happened to her, whether she was raped or not, or mentally ill or whatever. Or could this be all just because of the brain injury? She's crazy. Yeah. Like, she lost her marbles, whatever it is. You know, and maybe maybe it was a consequence of rape trauma. I don't know. But at this point in time, she's done lost her marbles. The most damning testimony... Against Tammy would come from her own stepdaughter. Her stepdaughter, would not, who was now 12 years old, took the stand and said that she had been living with Richard and Tammy at the time of the deaths. She testified that she witnessed Tammy put her hands over both Robbie and Amy's mouths at different times and watched the way their feet would kick. She testified that on the day that Ricky died, she heard Tammy yell in a loud, mean voice, quote, you're going to die, end quote. She said she was too scared of her stepmother to do anything except hide in her room. She didn't tell anybody because she was too afraid that she would be next. Holy crap. Yeah, that's, that's hor that's horrifying. You know, you know your little sibling is being murdered and there's not a thing you can do about right. it. Ugh. Or else it's going to happen to you. On February 5th, 1993, Tammy Corbett, who is now divorced and using her big name, was found guilty of the murders of Robert and Amy Evans. 
On February 10th, she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. She filed appeals in 1993 and 1996, but both were denied. She is still in prison and currently serving her sentence at the Logan Correctional Center in Lincoln, Illinois. Like, you wiped out your family. Like, there had... There has to be some, like, some kind of mental problem going on. There has to be something. Like, Like, it doesn't excuse what happened. She needs to spend her whole life in prison, but there's got to be something wrong in her head. Whether it's a result of the rape she keeps saying, and or if it's a result of mental illness or the head injury. I don't even know, but she's not right. No, not at all. You can't be right in the head and do something like I that. I wonder if they've done any kind of other like psychological profiling on her since she's been in prison. That would be interesting. To see if they've actually diagnosed her or something. Alright, so now I'm going to blow your mind. Are you ready? Blow me away. This little bitty town of Brighton, Illinois. Yeah. 2,400 people. 2,400 people. Close to our house. Mm, kind of close to our house. 1980s, there's a serial killer mom named Tammy. Right. Get this. She's not the only one in this town. There's another mother in this small, very small town that is killing her children, serial killer style, in Brighton, Illinois, at the same time. Let me guess. It's her name. Her name is Tammy Corbett, and it's her, like, alter ego. Nope. I don't even know what that means. That's her alter ego, like Clark Kent and Superman. She's the same person, but twice. Yeah, well, she could have been. But this is Paula Sims. Now, the interesting thing is, is that when I read about Tammy Corbett, I was really surprised because I had never heard of her before I started really researching for our podcast. Right. But the other serial killer mom, I was very familiar with. Because there's been books, there's been a movie. I mean, there's a Lifetime movie. About Paula Sims. Okay. So, blowing your mind here. Little bitty town, two serial killing moms. And I'm going to tell you now all about Paula Sims. She was born Paula Blue in May of 1959 in Missouri. She had a pretty normal upbringing. Her parents were happily married and she had two brothers. But something tragic happened in her youth. Her brother Randall died in a car accident And Paula was really close with her brother. So a lot of people that knew her said that this just devastated her. In the summer of 1986, she married Robert Sims. Robert was a graduate of Alton High School and he worked with the Alton Boxboard Company. Now, Robert Sims did not have a squeaky clean past. He had previously been charged with shoplifting And with one of his previous employers, there were allegations of misconduct. And I don't exactly know what that means. But there was something that, you know... He was doing something wrong to something or somebody or somewhere or someone. Right. He had also been married once before, but his former wife divorced him because of, quote, extreme and repeated mental cruelty, end quote. So he sounds like a winner. Right. On June 5th, 1986, Paula gave birth to the couple's first child, a daughter that they named Lorelai Sims. That's such a cute name. It is. I was just going to say the same thing. I was like, that's such an adorable name. Come here, little Lorelai. That's just so cute. (laughs) Those close to the couple described not this, like, overwhelmingly joyous homecoming, though, 
for Paula and her daughter. There were some weird circumstances in this house. Reportedly, Robert would not allow Paula to sleep in their marital bed after the birth of their daughter. So Paula and Lorelai slept downstairs in the finished basement of the home. I wonder if this is like back in the old days with like kings. You did not give me a son. You are banished. Well, that's kind of the gist of what I... But back then they would have been beheaded. But I mean... Well, yeah, he didn't behead her. But he banished her to the basement, apparently. Now, Robert worked nights... And he claimed the sleeping arrangements were to accommodate his sleeping schedule. So, maybe? I I mean, I I could... But if that's the case, then why aren't you sleeping in the basement? And your wife and newborn. Right. Like, it's... And I'm sorry, like, if you're working nights, the basement would be great because it's dark. Right. So I call... I call bullshit about the whole sleeping arrangements. And if he's working nights, then that means he's sleeping during the... Day, so why would it matter where she and the baby sleep at night? If he, because he, he wouldn't even be home. Well, that's true too. Yeah, didn't really make a lot of sense. But on the surface, if someone just says that, you're like, oh, okay. But then you really got to think about it. You're like, wait a minute. He was working nights on June seventeenth. In fact, nineteen eighty six, when Paula started pounding on the door of her elderly neighbors. She was sobbing hysterically, and her neighbor could barely comprehend the words coming out of her mouth. But she eventually understood that Paula was telling her someone had stolen baby Lorelai. The Jersey County Police Department arrived soon after and investigated this kidnapping. Paula said that a masked gunman had entered her home and forced her to lay down on the floor. She claimed that the gunman then kidnapped her newborn baby and left. Police immediately had doubts about the story, but they started the massive search that you would start any time a baby goes missing. Well, I think anybody has a massive doubts about that story. Who who goes in to a house at random and just steals a kid? I I don't even want the kids I have. I'm not stealing somebody else's kid. <laughs> On the surface, I would say you're right. Um, but I will say there have been cases where, like, newborns are kidnapped because, you know, somebody wants a baby and can't have one. But a lot of times it's by somebody who either knows the person because they know they're pregnant. Or, like, I've heard, you know, stories where maybe you've got balloons that say, like, oh, it's a girl in your front yard. And, right. you know, some psycho that wants a baby girl. I I have heard that, so I guess it's not, like, entirely impossible. Many things about Lorelai's disappearance, though, didn't sit right with the investigators. First, the scenes showed no sign of a struggle. The next morning, divers were getting ready to search a pond near the home when investigators suggested that Paula come into the police station for a formal statement. They wanted to just get all of her her thoughts down on paper as soon as possible, you know, before she forgot anything or, you know, it's always better to give that statement immediately. Her response, though, Chris, you're going to read her response. Uh, she said, quote, no, I want to be here when they bring her body up, end quote. Yeah, that's suspicious as hell. Yeah. She quickly, though, realized what she said, and she rephrases it, and she says, quote, No, that's not what I meant. I mean, 
my baby is alive and I want to be here when they bring her onto the porch. End quote. Like, that's that's two totally drastic different statements. Right. So, despite the shocking statement, the divers didn't find anything that day. The police strongly suspect that Robert and Paula had some sort of foul play and they heavily questioned this couple. And when they start throwing accusations, Robert and Paula do what I would recommend anybody do. Get and they a lawyer. hired an attorney. On June 24th, 1986, the search for Lorelai was still in action. The police decided they wanted to search a wooded area near Paula and Robert's home. But the wooded area was the opposite direction from where Paula told them that the intruder ran to. So they were trying to convince the police that they were looking the wrong way, basically. Right. When they mentioned searching the area, Robert Sims advised that they shouldn't search that area because there's heavy poison ivy there. I'm sorry, if my baby's missing, I don't give a fuck who gets poison ivy. You find my baby. Exactly. I will buy the the calamine lotion. Right. Like, what? Like, that's whatever. Why anybody would be worried about poison ivy when their daughter's missing... Beyond me. Unless you had something to do about that. They brought canines in and they had the canines assist in the search for Lorelai and they found her. Lorelai Marie Sims' deceased body was found in that wooded area. The wooded area that the dad didn't want searched. Right, because somebody might get poison ivy. Because you might get itchy skin. The medical examiner determined the cause of death to be asphyxiation either by a hand or a blanket held over the baby's mouth and nose. So just a a quick side note here. So remember, this is the same town and this is 1986. So this is the year before Tammy's first son passed away. Right. So I'm assuming it was probably the same medical examiner. Right. But they immediately went to murder here. Now, my thought is probably because of where her body was found. Right. And the circumstances were a little bit different. It wasn't played off like an accident. Right. And, I mean, in the other cases, it was set up to that it looked like, oh, yeah, that looked like SIDS. Oh, he had a brain injury. Oh, that's meningitis. Right. Like, this one is just straight blatant, like, okay, newborn baby out in the middle of the woods. <laughs> nope. Exactly. And it's asphyxiation. Nope. Right. So, by the urging of their attorneys, the Sims were no longer cooperative with authorities, and even though they found her body, there was not enough physical evidence to secure an indictment. That kind of surprises me. Right. I mean, I get that there wasn't a lot of physical evidence, but you know how she died, and she was a tiny little baby, and she was found right next to her parents' property. That to me would be enough circumstantial evidence, but to at least they, get they a, weren't able to get an indictment. So I don't know if they took it to the grand jury and the grand jury declined to indict, or they or just if felt they, they just didn't feel like confident in their case. Right, and that could be too. Like they didn't, they just didn't know because they didn't. They had a lack of information to go on. Well, and maybe they thought, you know, maybe this masked intruder 
took the baby out there and killed her, which, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but which, at the same I, time, you get in front of a jury, how are you going to prove that's not what happened? Right, and from the way it sounds, the cops didn't believe that shit anyway, so. Right. In February of 1988, Randall Troy Sims was born to Robert and Paula. That's what they need, another baby. Nurses at the hospital described Robert as very attentive and an extremely proud father. Robert and Paula had at this time up and moved out, and they had moved to Alton. Robert built a privacy fence around their Alton home, and Paula kept curtains over the shades. Neighbors found the family to be very quiet and noticed that they they mostly kept to themselves. They weren't very social people. On March 18, 1989, Paula gave birth to another child, Heather Lee Sims. The same nurses who cared for Paula during the birth of Randy were present during the birth and and the aftercare of Heather, and they described it as totally different. This time they said that Robert was inattentive and completely uninterested in his daughter. Mm, He thinks we have a sexist father. Sounds that way. Sounds like he wanted boys and nothing else. Yep. While in the hospital following Heather's birth, Paula told a very interesting story to her roommate. She told the story of her first child, Lorelai. But this time she said that a masked gunman knocked her unconscious while she was taking out the trash and kidnapped her daughter, which was a totally different story than she told authorities. Well, well, yeah, when you're lying, it's hard to keep track of it. Yeah, just wait, though. On April 29th, 1989... Police were once again called to the Sim home. This time, Robert called the police and told them that he came home from work and found his wife, Paula, lying on the kitchen floor unconscious. He was able to wake her, but when he went to check on his children, he found that his six-week-old daughter, Heather, was missing. Two-year-old Randy was safe in his bed. A shaken Paula called the police and told them A shaken Paula told the police that she was taking out the trash when a masked intruder forced her at gunpoint into the house and knocked her unconscious. Oh, so she was making the story up of already how she was going to get rid of the baby. Yeah. Six weeks ago, she tells the story to her roommate, and then it magically happens. She claimed that the masked intruder must have stolen her baby. Again. She must have some really good babies then. Right? I mean... The investigators were immediately suspicious. They they didn't believe this at all. First of all, Paula had no injuries, no signs of blunt force trauma, no scrapes, not even a bump on the head. There were no signs of a struggle. And even more suspicious, Paula made the comment to her husband in front of the investigators, quote, my son's all right. That's all that matters, end quote. Some, like, I think there might be a little bit of brainwashing going on a little bit, too. Yeah. Like, at this point, it's like, okay, we know the dad wants just boys. And maybe mom's starting to realize that the girls aren't good. Yeah, I don't know. It's craziness, though. A massive search effort was made to find Heather Sims. And eventually she was found. She was found May 9th, 1989, by a fisherman in East Alton, Missouri. So, the other side of the river. 
Just over the Mississippi River from Alton, Heather's body was in a trash bag in a trash bin. The cause of death was once again determined to be asphyxiation by someone either placing their hand or a blanket over the nose and mouth of the baby. Randall Sims was immediately moved to foster care while this case was being investigated to ensure his safety. Apparently he was safe, though. Like, yeah. he was a boy. He's safe. Right. But, you know, like, if I, no, I get somebody it. killing two of no, their kids, I get, like, their No, I'm not saying that he shouldn't be taken. <laughs> right. But I'm just saying that the kid was safe anyway. He was a boy. Yeah. There's a Forensic Files episode about this case. And in this case, they explain that they did testing on the trash bag that Heather's body was found in. And it was forensically connected to a roll of trash bags in the Sims house. In fact, the forensic specialist was so confident that he said the bag had been made within 10 seconds of the roll of bags of the same brand found in the Sims house. Like, and that's just crazy that forensic like, case, like, forensic science is getting so in-depth that we can, like, there's no way to hide hide things anymore. No. No, I can tell that that trash bag was made on the same line as this one, and they were 10 seconds apart. Like, right. how the, like, dude, get a light, like, I'm glad you're doing this, but damn. That's <laughs> like, insane, damn, like, right? Like, what kind of crazy science kind of stuff are you doing to figure this out right the pathologist also determined that heather's body was in different degrees of decomposition internally and externally and what this told them was that at some point in time heather had been frozen paula sims was arrested and charged with murder on july 2nd 1989 Authorities did not feel like there was enough evidence to charge Robert Sims with a crime. I call horseshit. Well, he wasn't home when either child, quote, disappeared. So at this point, they didn't find enough evidence to charge him with a crime. Like, this whole, like, I mean, I love the like, I love the way our justice system works sometimes. But the whole, you have to prove, you have to prove, you know, like, the proof of, like, the burden of proof falls on. Yeah. It's dumb sometimes. I don't know. During her trial, the defense presented evidence that Paula Sims did not prefer boys to girls. They showed doll clothes that she had apparently saved from her own childhood and that she wanted to give to her daughters. The evidence paled, though, in comparison to the evidence against her. There was testimony of bizarre behavior in the Sims home. Investigators testified that during questioning... Robert Sims described that Heather disappeared, and he said that the night after she disappeared, the couple had the most satisfying sex of their entire marriage while their daughter was missing. The That's fuck? crazy as fuck. Right? If this was not odd enough on its own, friends of Paula testified that Paula was, once again, banned from the marital bed after the birth of Heather. So after both Heather and Lorelai, she was banned from the marital bed for producing females, presumptively. And it's not even her fault. No, the genes come from the men. Just saying. Um, but the same people that described her being banned from the marital bed after the birth of her daughter said that after the birth of her son, she was not banned from the bed. A friend described Paula as venting to her about her frustrations over her marriage. 
and that Robert had a lot of rules for the marriage. I'm sorry. If there's if a marriage comes with a shit ton of rules, it don't need to be a marriage. Well, it's not. It's not a real marriage if it comes with a bunch of rules. It's a legal marriage, not that's a, a. That's a dictatorship. Right. Exactly. It's a contract, a contractual agreement. But it's not really a contact contractual agreement either, though, because she's not getting any benefit out of it. Right. Along with the forensic evidence, this testimony was enough to convict Paula Sims on January 30th, 1990. The judge sentenced her to life in prison without the possibility of parole, but spared her the death penalty. And again, this happened in Illinois. It wouldn't have mattered anyway, because all death row prisoners were commuted to life in prison in 2003. So even if they... 2004. 2003. Okay. So, even if they had given her the death penalty, it wouldn't have mattered. Later in 1990, Robert divorced Paula, and he regained custody of his son, Randy. Paula eventually confessed to the murders of both Lorelai and Heather. She never implicated her ex-husband in the killings. Robert went on to raise Randy, and he remarried in 2002. He was said to live a Christian life, and he often preached outside abortion clinics. I'm going to just like, I'm not going to go into the whole abortion debate on our podcast. But all I'm going to say is be Christian all you want. Leave people alone. <laughs> like, right. You know, if somebody's going into an abortion clinic, you don't even know what they're going in there for. It could have nothing to do with an abortion. And guess what? It's none of your damn business. And all right, I'm done with my rant. Randy grew up to be a teacher at Collinsville Christian Academy. However, both Robert and Randy were killed in a drunk driving accident while on a religious mission trip in Mississippi in 2015. That kind of sucks. Yeah. Um, as far as I can tell, they were they were not the ones drinking, though. They were the victims of a drunk driver. So right. That's it's, terrible. Whether or not I think Robert was a good person or not, because I don't. Like, nobody, like, like, nobody you, deserves that. Right. Not at all. Paula Sims appealed her conviction multiple times despite confessing to the crimes. She claimed that her attorney did not provide proper representation, and she also requested that postpartum depression be considered a defense. Now, I will say a lot of the postpartum depression and psychosis defenses happened after her case, like with the Polly Yates case, and, um, you know, she's the one that drowned five of her kids in the bathtub. Like, that stuff happened after this. And so I do think that that was a possible, like, defense for her. Do I think that's what it was? No, I really don't. But... Do I think it's something that her her attorney could have used as a defense? I do. Um, Clemency was requested but denied by Governor Bruce Rauner, and so far most of her appeals have been unsuccessful. However, um, since our first episode when we originally covered this case, there has been an update. Governor J.B. Pritzker has commuted part of her sentence. So even though she's still sentenced to life, he removed the part of her sentence that without parole. So she is now eligible for parole. Um, she has not been paroled, and whether or not she will is is yet to be seen. But so, she is now eligible for parole. So how does that work? I know you have to like serve a certain amount of, the, of your sentence before you can go up for parole, right? Yeah. So do they count time served into that? Yes. 
So, like, as soon as he said, okay, she can be paroled, like, the next day she could have been on a parole board and been, like... Well, I think you have certain days, and I don't know how they determine that, but, like, you may have an opportunity to go before the parole board on such and such date, and then after that, you don't get another opportunity until, you know, maybe a few years later or whatever date they determine. So, and I'm not aware that she has gone before the parole board yet, but she is now eligible to, at some point, do that. What kills me about these stories is how similar they are. You know, they're both occurring in the small little town of Brighton, Illinois, at the same time in the 80s, I mean, they are these stories literally are overlapping each other and occurring within a 30-mile radius of each other. Right. Yet, I had no idea before I started researching for our podcast who Tammy Corbett was. Never heard of her. Paula Sims, there's been a movie. It's called Precious Victims. Um, there's been television shows. She was featured on Forensic Files, Deadly Women. There's multiple books. Well, you said that Paula Sims happened first, correct? Well, the Lorelai Sims was 86, and then Robbie Evans was 1987, and then I think, like, they intertwined. Yes, Paula's first daughter was first, but, like, they were intermixed. These were happening sim- basically simultaneously right. over 86, then 87, it- and 88. I mean, that is weird. I mean, you'd think some major network would be like, oh, this is a story. Right. Like, not yeah, it's a story when uh, you take one, take the other. But damn, you find out that both of them are exactly, like, in the same timeline, in the same, like, right. like 10, 20 miles. Five mile. children within this 30-mile radius were murdered by their mother within a three-year time span. Right. It's insanity. And, like, the biggest distinction you can find, though, is really the husbands. Robert Even Sr., I'm sorry, Richard Even Sr., was, by all accounts that I could find, a loving father who was basically, like, the murders of his children were from his wife to, like, he was the target of that frustration. Right. She did it to punish him. Whereas, it seems like... Paula Sims did it to please her husband. Now, she has never implicated him, even though she has admitted to the murders. So, you know, I don't want to speak ill of somebody who has never been charged with a crime or convicted of a crime. But, holy smokes, does he look bad. Especially, like, in the portrayals in the movies and stuff. Like, he seems like a creepy dude. And it seems like she did it. To please her husband, Tammy did it to punish her husband. You can't really go by off of what movies depict, though. There's so much... No, you can't. But the comments, oh, the comments that he made, like, don't search over there because you might get poison ivy. Right. Who gives a shit? I don't know. Like, he definitely didn't seem like, you know, and he had an ex-wife who left him because of mental cruelty. So, I mean, like... I'm not feeling real good about Robert Sims. I'm right. just saying. I, I no, I understand. I, I don't know that he actually was involved in it, but I definitely think that, you know, she did it to please him. Right. And that's, I I believe that 100%. I, I think he was the controlling force in that relationship. And he was kind of ticked off that, like, he, was ha- he wasn't having sons. He was having daughters. Ugh. It's just stupidity. Yeah. little biology lesson. The male's DNA determines the gender of the child. Female has nothing to do with it. You can be as woman as you want to be. Doesn't matter. 
Right. <laughs> it just kills me. So. And like the uh, another thing that kind of was weird is that all of them were strangled. Right. Or asphyxi- asphyxiated, I guess. Cause, yeah. I mean, I guess there is a definite, like a definitive difference between strangulation and asphyxiation. But that's how all, all five of the kids died. Right. Well, and I mean, if you think about it, like, that's probably the easiest and less gruesome way to kill a child. I know. No, I'm sorry. But with, uh, when Tammy was killing her kids and watching them kick their legs, like, oh, no. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I'm not saying it's not horrific. It is absolutely horrific. And obviously there was something more that she did because her kid had a fractured skull. Right. So I think she probably beat that kid's skull into the table or something. But, like, I'm just thinking, like, asphyxiation is not bloody, you know. That's what I'm thinking. It's not as gory and like that. It's still evil. Complete evil. You know, this little baby is helpless and relies on you for everything and that's what you do. Yep, you decide to just cover her mouth. Ugh, it's disgusting. These cases um, are just, they're heart-wrenching and they're horrible. And it's just insane to me that that's all happened so close to home. Both women are currently in the custody of the Illinois Department of Corrections and are both currently housed at the Logan Correctional Center. Good, that's where they need to be. We hope you guys enjoyed this remastered version of episode one. You can find the pictures and the blog post and all of my references at www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook. And if you listen to us and like our podcast, please rate us on Apple Apple Podcast. Apple. 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 Um, you know, we appreciate those ratings and getting your good feedback. Well, and that's the thing. Like, it's feedback. Like, we, we're not, we don't sit there and, like, read the reviews on a constant basis and be like, oh, they don't like us. No, we want to know, like, this is the reason why we're doing the remasters. Is because one of the things is, yeah, our first five episodes. The sound quality was shit. I mean, we <laughs> didn't have the best equipment, and it was on a whim. Well, we, we still just... don't have the best equipment, but we're, we've upgraded hey, a little. Hey, we're recording into a computer now. Yeah, we're instead, doing a little better. Instead of straight to your iPhone through a, a $10 mic that we bought off of Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're doing a little bit better here. Yeah, so. but I mean, I hope you guys like it. Let us know. Like I said, we love feedback. We love the, We love criticism. That's how we get better with this. Absolutely. Um, also, if you guys would like to, uh, we'd like to invite you guys to become a patron. Uh, we're not on Patreon. It's Patron through Podbean. Uh, we have, I believe, five different levels of membership. Yeah, and just if you go to our Facebook page or to our website, there's a link on how you can become a patron, and you can do so with as little as a dollar a month, and that will get you access to some exclusive content, Um, and if you come in at our silver level, which is $5 a month, you'll get all of our patron-only episodes that we're going to do. Right, and I I think we're taking, once we get this edited and put up, I'm saving the actual... Our old episode, the and original, the original shitty audio. Yeah, version. and I think and I think I'm gonna archive it one, but then I think I'm gonna throw it up on 
like patron on only. the patron account. Yeah, I mean, cause, it's kind of interesting. Like, it's fun for us to go back and to listen to how nervous I was and, and just and how, how much I didn't talk. Right. I mean, just, I don't think I talked that much this episode, but I think it's... And the sound was so bad, but, yeah. I just, I just loved the old uh, opening theme music that we had that was basically played off your off of your phone, played into the microphone. Like, we had no clue what we were doing. No, no. We, we, still, we, we, have still have, we still have no clue what we're doing. No, but we've come a long way, baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and like I said, you know, we're with you guys becoming patrons and helping us out... Like that, we're not get here to get rich. That's help. That's just to help us cover some of the costs and possibly upgrade some equipment. Right. We want to keep bringing this um, awesome content to you guys. Um, I know that it's nice to hear stories about, you know, things that have actually happened in your backyards and in your communities, and and that's what we really want to do with this podcast. Yeah. Is, is bring those stories to life, especially the lesser-known ones. So if you have any suggestions, please hit us up. You can email us at midwestcrimefiles at gmail.com, or you can comment um, on our website or our Facebook page. And we love to get um, suggestions for stories. And, you know, until yeah, and- next time, we'll see you all later. See you guys. Bye.